Hello there. I'm Tim Bidermius, and it's NPR's Book of the Day. In today's episode, two Hollywood titans reflect on their careers through books. In a minute, we'll hear from Oscar winner Tom Hanks, who has a new novel out called The Making of Another Major Motion Picture Masterpiece. But first, the legendary Jerry Seinfeld. He's long been revered for his comedic chops, but in 2012, he made a splash with his series Comedians in Cars Getting Coffee. Yes, it's funny, as anyone would expect, but it's also incredibly intimate and speaks to the special connection two comedians can have when they talk about their lives and the craft they use to reflect on it. He's taken the energy of that series and put it in a new coffee table book called The Comedians in Cars Getting Coffee Book. He spoke about it with Here and Now host Robin Young. This message comes from NPR sponsor BetterHelp. When life is flying by, it's important to take a moment to hit pause, set intentions, and reset. That's where BetterHelp Online Therapy comes in. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Visit BetterHelp.com NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor BritBox, helping people discover a world of British TV, including new original drama Time, starring Jodie Whittaker, Tamara Lawrence, and Bella Ramsey. Streaming at BritBox.com NPR. We all know Jerry Seinfeld starred in the sitcom Seinfeld, which was about nothing. Then in 2012, he created a reality show. Hi, I'm Jerry Seinfeld, and this is Comedians in Cars Getting Coffee. And as you're about to hear in some of my formal introduction to our talk that I tried to get through without Jerry laughing when we sat down last week, viewers didn't know what Comedians in Cars was about. We all said, what? What is that? (laughs) Much like the show Seinfeld, it purported to be about nothing. Just for Mm -hmm. 10 years, Jerry Seinfeld asking fellow comedians to simply get in a car and get coffee while we listened. And it was never just a cup of coffee. It was a sacred, sensual ritual, loving shots of (laughs) brew dripping into the pot. What is that making up for, Jerry Seinfeld? (laughs) So much for my formal introduction. Jerry Seinfeld's new book includes transcripts of the show, conversations that are hilarious and intimate. Here's Jerry and Amy Schumer. What's really hard for you? I know for female comics, it's hard to, to date someone. It's usually an issue what we do. Do you think female cops have the same problem? I do think that. I don't think it's harder to do the job. It's everything else. It's everything else. Yeah. The book celebrates the 10th anniversary of the show. It's what else? A large coffee table book. It's called The Comedians in Cars Getting Coffee Book. And here's our conversation. And, Jerry, I'm thinking you could have named it The Comedians in a Car Getting Coffee Table Book. Obviously, Robin, I thought of that. (laughs) And? And dismissed it because (laughs) I didn't want to tread on Kramer's coffee table coffee book, that the coffee table book that becomes a coffee table. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. See, the beauty of my book is if you don't have a coffee table... It turns into a coffee table. Jumping in to say that's Michael Richards as Kramer debuting his coffee table book on the Regis and Kathy Lee show within a Seinfeld episode. In real life, by the way, it did have table legs and it sold quite well, as Jerry reminded me. That uh, fell into the category. I think we did that joke already. That's right. Sorry. Um, That's right. But as I said, when the show, Comedians and Cars Getting Coffee, first debuted, 
People were saying, what is this? And you start your introduction in the new coffee table book by saying, I almost feel like I should apologize for this idea I had. (laughs) (laughs) Why? Well, it just seems a little indulgent. All all the late night talk shows, I pretty much only am waiting for the comedian to come on. So I thought, well, what if there's a show where that's the only guest that they have? And they can say things that the audience doesn't go, whoa, (laughs) you know, and kind of interrupt what is heading towards maybe something a little subtle or a little personal. You cannot put a comedian in front of an audience and ask him to not service that audience. They won't do it. But what did you want to say about comedians? You know, you say they're the closest things to inanimate objects. They're not part of this terrestrial world. They move like an alien spaceship. So here you are in your spaceship in a car. What do you mean by that? Well, uh, I mean, if I play you the unedited footage of two comedians talking, nobody moves faster through subjects. Comedians never say, whoa, where did that come from? They're there. They're on hyperdrive. That's what a stand-up set is. It's a condensed, hyperkinetic, fake conversation. Nobody talks in a series of jokes. It's a ridiculous conceit that is, happens to be a lot of fun, but it takes a tremendous amount of work to create it. But the comedian brain that can do that is not a typical brain. Yeah. So, for instance, Jim Carrey talks about a gig where he was a cockroach running around trying to avoid a vacuum cleaner, and your response is, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Right. Makes perfect sense. Yeah, that's logical. Yeah. And each show begins with a phone call to the comic, and here's the one that begins your episode with the late, marvelous Gary Shandling. Let's listen. Gary? Oh, Jerry. When do we do the phone call that would be on air? Now. We're doing it now. Oh, my God. I haven't talked to you in so long. I can't wait to see you. And you had it right because everything in my life needs to be edited. Well, everything in your life comes after a 19-second pause. I don't know why you say that. (laughs) (laughs) We can hear how dear friends you were. Mm -hmm. Were they all dear friends? No, a lot. many of these people I had never met before. Amy Schumer I had never met before. Really? Steve Martin, maybe I met him. Uh, no, 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 I wait, wait, wait. We, th- we think of you rooming together. We think of you right. in, in comedy dorm, no? Right. Well, that's the thing that I discovered doing the show is any comedian sits down with any other comedian and you feel like you grew up together. I remember once when I was starting out, I was playing a club called The Ice House. About halfway through my 25-minute show, I realized that I had not gotten one laugh. And I thought, why not go for the record? 25 clean. (laughs) You know, if you're a comedian, your whole life is completely artificial, except for the comedy. The comedy is the only real thing to you. Everything else, you're just kind of trying to act normal so people don't realize how off you are. I was at a dinner the other night with Steve Martin and Seth Meyers and uh, uh, John Mulaney and our wives. Somebody heard there's this new Chinese restaurant in town. Oh, why don't we make a date? We can all go to this Chinese restaurant. And I think it was Seth Meyers' wife said, with these autistic men, we're going to go out. (laughs) No offense to people on the spectrum. No offense. You can ask my wife what it was like, how much... I had to learn how to do to function, you know, things that I had never needed to learn before because I didn't have a normal social uh, world that I lived in. Hmm. Can you give us an example? I had to walk into a room of people and there's no comedian to talk to. (laughs) 
Um, what was it like to sit in the living room with Carl Reiner and Mel Brooks? You start in this conversation I'm looking at, hey, can we get back to Get Smart? Because that was another show that changed my life. <laughs> and Carl says, oh, he played it here last night. I mean, what was it like to be in their presence? For me, that was a, that's a religious moment. Can you imagine meeting Moses? You know. Although instead of a tablet, Mel came up with the shoe phone. Right, the shoe smart. phone. Right. <laughs> Mel and Carl, Jerry Lewis, Don Rickles. Uh, I love my contemporaries, but it was the older guys I, I love the most. Yeah. Because people ask, what's it like to be on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson? I used to say, it's like there's a doorknob on the front of your TV and you just opened it and stepped inside. Yeah. I love that somebody, I can't remember who, said that Red Skelton, it might have been Michael Richards, who said yes, that. Yes, it was. He yeah, loves Red Skelton. Red Skelton was his hero. And one day, Red Skelton was the audience, and he signaled to him to stand up and be recognized. And instead, he stood up and did an hour. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Well, speaking of Michael Richards, sometimes these conversations read like therapy. Mm-hmm. You know, you each helping each other. And we all know mm-hmm. that your mm-hmm. former Seinfeld castmate, you know, had a huge controversy in 2006, a video of him going on a pretty racist tirade against a heckler, mm-hmm. uh, went viral. He retired from stand-up in 2007, mm-hmm. and he says to you, like, I made a mistake. You know, I, I was concentrating on myself, my ego, and, you know, you had the conversation about the incident. By the way, did you ever think of not talking to him because of that? Oh, no, absolutely not. I'm not minimizing what happened, but how could you not understand a mistake? Mm-hmm. I mean, every, every comedian knows what it's like to be up there in that frying pan, and it's very easy to lose your equilibrium and make a terrible mistake. I, I've offered to uh, have fistfights with audience members. I said, let's go outside right now and sort this out. Mm-hmm. The thing I remember most, actually, from that conversation, we were talking about the series, and he said, gee, I wish I would have enjoyed it more. And, and I said, that wasn't our job to enjoy it. It was our job for them to enjoy it. Well, I think we have a little bit about that. Okay. I, it's always a struggle with me. Uh, no, no. I don't accept the judging of process. It doesn't matter that you like to rehearse with your nose up against the flat saying lines. That doesn't matter. You used to see me back there doing yes. that, huh? We're all trying to get to the same island. Whether you swim, fly, surf, or skydive in, it doesn't matter. What matters is when the red light comes on. Okay. Well, you say in the introduction that the book is a Valentine, really. Maybe mm-hmm. the show was, too? Yes, see? of course, absolutely. Because why? When you suddenly find yourself in the group of people that have the same uh, thing as you, you feel at home for the first time in your life. You've always felt, I don't belong here. And for the first time, you walk into a club and there's all these comedians standing at the bar and you feel like, oh, I, this is where I belong. That feeling is, that's a life moment. That gives your life, that gives you a life. I didn't know what I was here for. Now I know. Those friendships are what I wanted to, um, to show. I wanted to show there's a quality to these friendships. There's something about them that's just different. It always starts the same way. You're like, you're like in second grade or third grade, and you're the funny kid in the class, you know, and then you find another funny kid. And it's like, there we are. We're like two rhesus monkeys. They just grab each other, you know. 
And it stays like that your whole life. You just walk in the room, and if, there's, if you're a comedian, you see another comedian, you just run over to him. Yeah. That's Jerry Seinfeld. His new coffee table book is The Comedians in Cars Getting Coffee Book. Uh, Jerry, thanks so much for talking to us about it. Thank you, Robin. It's been a pleasure. This message comes from NPR sponsor Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sell without needing to code or design. Just bring your best ideas and Shopify will help you open up shop. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash NPR. You'd be forgiven if you thought Tom Hanks was the center of gravity on every set he stepped on. The legendary actor is known for iconic roles, too many to list here, and has a list of awards that's equally as prolific. But in his new book, a novel called The Making of Another Major Motion Picture Masterpiece, he pays respect to the whole filmmaking ecosystem. He tells NPR's A. Martinez that films are a juggernaut to make, and everyone involved, from the A-list actors to the truck driver dropping off set equipment, has a story to tell about what brought them to any given set. Hanks says that any movie is a collection of 627 million moments that are captured on the frame. It takes a lot of people to make it happen, and he wants to give them all some time in the spotlight. Here's A. Martinez. For Tom Hanks, movies have always been transformative. He remembers going to the theater when he was seven years old and signature moments staying with him to this day. Now, after acting in dozens of movies, he's written a novel based on everything he's experienced on movie sets. In it, he pays tribute to not just the stars, but to the behind-the-scenes folks who make the movie magic happen. If someone was going to ask me, what is the surefire way that I can get to Hollywood? I would have two answers. One, as Betty Davis said, take fountain. <laughs> you know, that's, I'll let everybody figure out what that story means. Take, take fountain boulevard. Go to Google Maps. Yeah, go to Google Maps and take fountain. But the other one is solve problems. Tom Hanks' novel is called The Making of Another Motion Picture Masterpiece. The story spans seven decades, starting in 1947, when a U.S. Marine who served as a flamethrower returns from the Second World War and makes a big impression on his five-year-old nephew. By the 1970s, that kid grows up to become a cartoonist who creates a comic strip about his uncle. Then to present day, that comic strip gets developed into a superhero blockbuster by a famous director. The root of a motion picture, which is what this book is about, literally the first idea that ended up being incorporated into the movie that you and I see that is firmly rooted in today, did come from the imagination of a five-year-old boy who was playing around one day, knew that he had an uncle somewhere, and the uncle showed up, and he appeared as a god to him. So Bob Falls— A superhero, yeah, the, is the case. The maybe. person that you're talking about, Bob Falls, the uncle, he might exist somewhere in your, in your memory. Oh, Lord, yeah. yeah. Uh, when I was certainly growing up and being exposed to— some adult that had a painful mystery behind them, an unspoken truth that they carried with them. And that as a kid, you try to fill in the blanks yourself. You know, why is my teacher like this? Why is my dad's friend like this? Why is my uncle as terse as he is? Did you wonder, like people in your life when you were a kid, teachers, yeah. you know, an adult in your life, did you think what their backstory was even, even oh, back then? Oh, constantly. Yeah. And you would, you would get hit.
hints of that. And look, I, I get an awful lot of questions. Is what is it about World War II that you know, like generation that fought? What is it? Are you talking to ninety-five-year-olds? Is it the good or the <laughs> bad? Is it the good war as Studs Terkel wrote about, or is it your own individual, you know, namby-pambiness that you yourself never served in the military? You're talking like three different people, right? Well, there. it's <laughs> kind of like Edison and Malcolm, okay. a very cheap shot at anybody who's ever interviewed me. But what I ended up getting from, and, and also is the root of both Bob Falls, the artist who ended up drawing the first incarnation of this, of the superhero that, that appears in, in the movie, is it, does come from a generation that spoke about the war mm. as the defining period of their lives, before, during, and after. But this is a guy that just came back, got off the boat, took off his uniform, and said... There is no way I'm going to go back home and take up a job in, a, in my dad's printing office. I am going to wander and I am going to let whatever happens, happens based on what I saw and what I did and what I did to others on these small little specks of, uh, of coral in, uh, in the Pacific Ocean for the better part of four years of their lives. It seems like we need something to be a touchstone in our lives that changes things or maybe redefines how we feel about that. And I think collectively, as you take it in, as you take in this record of what you yourself went through, it devolves into tropes. It devolves into very simple protagonist-antagonist dynamic. Good guys and bad guys. This happened and that caused that. And our own individual recollection of all those things is far from tropes. It is a bunch of small, tiny moments that we ourselves had to fill. And to make, <laughs> for a guy like me, to make a, write a book about the making of a movie, well, on one hand, that's an absolute bunt. You know, yeah, I did that and I did that. And everything that happened in the book, I witnessed or caused to happen myself. But the desire is to bust up the collective understanding of what like making a movie is from the tropes of, you know, lights, camera, action, that's a print, let's wrap. You know, it's, it, it is so far removed from, from simple predictive moments like that. And you get down into the great story that all life seems to be, which is our own individual battle against one damn thing uh, after another. So then why would you say it's a bunt for you to write a book about movies? Because I got anecdotes galore, man. I got stories. I mean, that's that's what we want to hear, right? Well, this is the thing that has... Landed upon me, I think, more importantly now at the age of 66 than it had. But making a movie is a blast. It is more fun than fun, almost no matter what is expected of you. Making a movie is confounding. It is at times physically miserable. It enrages you to the point that you could get into near fist fights over the, whether or not you're going to be allowed to do something or not. And yet, it is nothing but a huge collection of, I'll give it a number, any movie is a collection of 627 million moments that are captured somehow on the frame. And it's it's the input of certainly the actors and the writers and storytellers. It's also the input of the people who drive the trucks and park them first thing in the morning. It's the input of the guy who has to make sure the uh, generator is running. It's also the input of somebody who says, hey, I got to get, I got to make 52 peanut butter and jelly sandwiches and slice them up into triangles okay. and get them to the set. Otherwise, everybody's sugar levels are going to collapse about 3.30 in the afternoon. Because I read that you said that um, you think that people seem to think they know Everything Everybody there is thinks movies. they know how Why? Why do they think so? Made. I mean, I'll, I'll admit it. There's a bunch of the making of 
blank movie right. that I could see any yeah. time of the day. So is yeah. that why people think? Yeah, they, they do. They said, oh, they shot that and they planned that and they happened to this. Everybody thinks that it happens according to some grand design. And uh, it's, <laughs> it's actually just amalgam of serendipity. Good luck and bad luck. And, There's design too, though. There's, I mean, well, without a doubt. But most people think that a movie reels out like a Broadway play does. Everybody knows exactly what they are, every, where they need to be, how they need to do it. But movies are a long series of accidents that you don't expect, as well as often occasional something that goes off exactly as you planned. It's all things all at the same time. That's Tom Hanks. His novel is the making of another major motion picture masterpiece. Tom, thank you. Thank you. I spoke to Tom Hanks before the Hollywood writer's strike. After, he told us, I am a member of every guild there is, and there is no doubt that the economics of our business has changed in the last few years. These changes affect everybody in the making of a motion picture masterpiece, and something needs to be worked out now. That's it for this week on NPR's Book of the Day. If you want more, you can sign up for our newsletter at npr.org slash newsletter slash books. I'm Tinbi Darmias. The podcast is produced by Isabella Gomez-Sarmiento and edited by Megan Sullivan. The show elements for this week were produced and edited by Ben Abrams, Rena Advani, Elena Burnett, Mallory Yu, Megan Lim, Sarah Handel, Samantha Balaban, Melissa Gray, Emiko Tamagawa, and Ziad Butch. Beth Donovan is our managing editor. Thank you so much for listening. This message comes from NPR sponsor Capital One. Capital One offers checking accounts with no fees or minimums and no overdraft fees. That's banking reimagined. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com slash bank. Capital One N.A. Member FDIC. Support for NPR and the following message come from Rosetta Stone, the perfect app to achieve your language learning goals no matter how busy your schedule gets. It's designed to maximize study time with immersive 10-minute lessons and audio practice for your commute. Plus, tailor your learning plan for specific objectives like travel. Get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off and unlimited access to 25 language courses. Learn more at rosettastone.com NPR. This message comes from The New Yorker. What makes a short story work? Explore the minds of writers like Otessa Moshfag and George Saunders on the New Yorker Fiction Podcast to find out. Listen to the New Yorker Fiction Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.